In Session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 3104410555. Before I begin, just another reminder, we are less than two weeks away to the for the first cruise that I'll be doing. Along with commercial travel, we'll be going to Ensenada, Mexico, March 9th through the 12th. March 9th through the 12th, less than two weeks away, but you can still book your cabins, uh, calling commercial travel at 818-883-8100. Really excited to be doing this and uh, hope to see you there. I'll be doing a few seminars, definitely on dating, relationships, and success and also some question and answer seminars uh, or sessions. And we'll also have entertainment with DJ Alex and other professionals on board as well. So it should be a really good time. Uh, Again, it's almost out of time, but you still do have time to book your cabin for that cruise. Again, commercial travels number 818-883-8100, March 9th through the 12th. Hope to see you there. All right, before I do the summary for uh, this past week's book of the week, This week, the book of the week is Mindful Tech by David Levy. Mindful Tech, How to Bring Balance to Our Digital Lives. And this was recommended by uh, Parnion in Seattle. So thank you for this recommendation. I have not read this book yet, but definitely looking forward to reading it. And it's definitely along the lines of topics I've talked about on this show related to how technology can make us definitely less mindful and less living in the moment. And also we oftentimes use it to avoid our feelings and get away from ourselves. And uh, in this book, I think he promotes ideas of actually self-awareness and finding ways to use technology because we can't get rid of it. We still do need it in our lives. We need our phones. We need the internet, but how can we use it in a way, as he says in the title here, to bring balance to our lives? So that's Mindful Tech by David Levy. Again, a big thanks to Parnion for that recommendation. Hope you'll join me in reading that book, and I'll talk about that next week. All right, the book for this past week was Cutting by Stephen Levincron. Cutting, Understanding and Overcoming Self-Mutilation. Definitely a heavy topic, um, but one that I wanted to make sure I talked about and devoted a book towards because it is so important, it is so heavy, Uh, Lots of myths and misconceptions about it. And also, um, it's a topic people don't like to talk about, which is why I want to talk about it. A lot of uh, taboos that we keep 
related to things like mental illness, suicide, sexual abuse. I want to talk about on this show so that people realize we can't deny them or avoid them. We have to face them and we have to educate ourselves and arm ourselves with the knowledge of what they are, uh, what they aren't, and what we can do about them. So cutting definitely falls in that category. As uh, the author, Stephen Levincron, mentions, cutting is something, and actually maybe I should say what that is when I'm talking about cutting, I'm talking about intentional self-harm of uh, cutting into the skin, oftentimes to draw blood. Um, It could be with blades, scissors, knives, other sharp objects. And also related to this are things like burning, uh, which is related in other types of self-harm that people can do but the one that's talked about oftentimes the most is cutting which is as it sounds cutting into the skin Uh, as he mentions people have a hard time talking about even hearing about this type of behavior and he mentions even therapists have a hard time facing it or dealing with it which again is why we need to talk about it and realize this is a real thing many people are dealing with and we can't ignore it Speaking of how many people are dealing with it, statistics do vary. In the book itself, he mentions one statistic of one out of every 50 adolescents. So that would be 2%. But I found some numbers online. Um, This was healthyplace.com, and I don't know exactly where they got this statistic from. But it said one in five females and one in seven males engage in self-injury each year. Now, maybe, I don't know what their... Uh, criteria was there. But we can see it's a very common issue that people are dealing with. Those numbers sound very high to me, but I do know it's one of those things that's going to be underreported. So nonetheless, it's something very common, meaning likely you know someone, um, are related to someone, friends with someone, or maybe you are someone who's engaged in this type of behavior. And the first thing to recognize is that you're not alone, or if you know someone who's dealing with it, they're not alone. They're not the only one doing it. Unfortunately, cutting is one of those behaviors that very often is accompanied with a lot of shame and hiding, and uh, oftentimes the person who is dealing with it or using this um, coping mechanism to deal with their emotions thinks they're the only one or thinks they're crazy for doing it, but we know the reality is that this is not the case. So we have to look at this as a real thing that people are dealing with and not something that we'll just consider a phase or something that some crazy people are doing. In essence, it's like an addiction, a way that people are trying to cope with their feelings or cope with feelings of aloneness or feeling isolated and trying to deal with it on their own. So someone might turn to alcohol or drugs, but another person might turn to self-harm and cutting. And I'll talk about how it can work in that way. And so similar to addictions, where it's very easy for us to judge someone and just say, hey, stop using that drug, stop drinking. That's the solution. And it seems very easy. And of course, with self-harm, people might even take that to more of an extreme. How could hurting yourself help you in any way? How can that be helpful? Why are you doing that to yourself? I can't understand it. I can't believe it. Uh, And we can even very strongly blame the victim or blame the person dealing with it. It's not that simple, and it's very hard, actually, for people to stop, just like any addiction. So we have to make sure that we approach this as we want to really approach anything with a non-judgmental attitude. So if you find your child 
doing it or teenager doing it or friend or whoever it might be, and, or even yourself. We want to make sure we don't approach it with strong negative judgment of how could you, why do you, you shouldn't do it, you're bad for doing it, you're crazy for doing it, or whatever else we might think or say in reaction to that. Because the idea of someone actually harming themselves in this way, we think of actually cutting a blade into your body and, and having blood, and somehow that's what you do to calm yourself, can be very, un, very difficult to understand. But if we think about what people do with drugs or alcohol or food or even sex and bad relationships and gambling, it's not that different. Although with cutting, the scars are literally visible, or they might hide them, but they actually are visible on the skin. We hurt ourselves in so many other ways with drugs, alcohol, relationships, and we make the same bad choices over and over again. So to judge someone for doing something just because we don't do it or we don't understand it is really uh, not going to be helpful and not recognizing the whole problem or the whole situation. So how might cutting uh, cause someone some kind of relief? Well, like any addiction or complicated behavior or disorder, there isn't one cause and there isn't one explanation for everyone. It does vary. But to some degree, what the cutting can do is several things. One is it can cause a person to be able to physically feel their pain, their emotional pain, that they're having a hard time expressing or communicating. Very often cutters are people who deal with a lot of emotional pain, but feel they have no outlets to verbalize and communicate that pain. Oftentimes their parents are either abusive, uh, sexually or physically, but not even just that. So don't think just because um, your parents, or if you're a parent and you're not physically or sexually abusing your child, they can't be a cutter. It's not just about that type of abuse. There also can be feelings of inability to share how you feel with your parents for reasons of being judged. Maybe your parents are too strict or harsh. They're emotionally closed off. Maybe they themselves are dealing with too much emotionally if they're depressed or anxious or worse and they can't handle anymore. So the child learns that they have to take care of their feelings themselves. But for whatever reason, the child or the adolescent has learned that they have to deal with their emotions on their own. And as he talks about throughout the book, they oftentimes have never formed a healthy attachment, a healthy trusting relationship with a caregiver. And so they learn that no one can help them with their pain and they have to learn to deal with their pain on their own. And so this is the way that some people can find a way to deal with it. Some might turn to drugs or alcohol or other means. Others might turn to cutting. And throughout the book, he uses the pronoun she because he says most cutters are female, but it definitely is not limited just to females. Males can also be cutters. It does appear that females engage in it more than men. But it doesn't mean if you have a son or if you know a male that they can't be using uh, this kind of behavior. So for one, they're trying to see or feel their pain. Some actually really are experiencing the cutting very intently. Others, as he describes in the book, dissociate. They might not even remember doing it. They might completely check out from the situation when they do it. So again, not everyone experiences it the same way. Another aspect of cutting that he describes throughout the book is the idea that for some people, unfortunately, because they had a caregiver who was hurtful, sometimes 
actually physically, but also potentially emotionally, they learn to associate pain with connection or pain with some type of closeness or familiarity or home. And this issue we see time and time again that we as humans, although we would think we would do what's in our best interest, we would make the right decision, we would do what feels good, very often we tend to repeat the same painful incidents from our past, repetition, compulsion throughout our lives. So we have a parent that's abusive in a certain way, and then we find partners who abuse us in that same way, unfortunately. So for these people, unfortunately, there's a association of pain with closeness. So when they're feeling isolated, when they're feeling alone, one thing that they can do that they can take in their own hands, literally, is to cut themselves and create that painful feeling, which, which somehow to them gives them a feeling of connection, a feeling of home. And what we see with addictions of all kinds, whether it's cutting or chemical dependencies, although there's so many factors involved, what seems to be a key ingredient in all of them is a feeling of isolation and aloneness, not feeling closer connected to anyone. Much of addiction, uh, although we see so many different factors, but it can come down to this feeling of not being connected to anyone, not having healthy attachments, healthy ways to uh, express ourselves to someone. And because we can't turn to anyone, we turn to something. And oftentimes, because these people have not had the ability to trust, they haven't formed trusting relationships, they like the idea, or there's something comforting of the idea, of having this be in their own hands. I can control how and when I express my pain or I deal with my pain. I don't have to rely on anyone. And oftentimes these people have a hard time trusting others, relying on others, and even sharing their needs or desires with other people. So they're dealing with it on their own. Another aspect of cutting um, is that when our body is injured in some way, where we experience some kind of pain, the body naturally sends endorphins, which are kind of like a feel-good chemical in our body, and this can feel good. So this is another way that it can actually cause some kind of relief for the cutter to feel this uh, rush of endorphins after the pain. Of course, unfortunately, it's a very unhealthy way of dealing with it, but we can understand there's reasons why they're doing what they're doing. So we have to understand that, although it's not something you're ever going to do or you don't think you would ever do, you have to try to understand what they are doing, that it is not completely just crazy and um, something that makes no sense. Is it good for them? No, I wouldn't want someone to do this. But can we try to understand it? Yes. Just like someone is addicted to drinking alcohol, would we want them to get blackout drunk again? No. But can we understand it? Yes. Unfortunately, this is part of some cycle and some way of coping that they have adapted. Now, it's also important uh, to keep in mind that there's a difference between cutting and suicide. Because one of the ways that unfortunately people take their lives is by cutting themselves, usually on the wrists, people associate any kind of cutting with suicide. Now, someone who cuts can be suicidal, but someone who cuts is not necessarily suicidal. They are different uh, behaviors or the goal is different. In suicide, their goal is to take their own life. In cutting, 
it is to gain some temporary relief and emphasis on temporary, just like any drug. It is a temporary relief from how they are feeling in that moment or being overwhelmed by feelings and trying to cope with it. So if you find that someone you know, whether it's a child, friend, family member, is cutting, don't assume they are suicidal because they are not necessarily the same thing. Now, unfortunately, sometimes cutters, not trying to actually take their own lives, can cut too far or too deep more than they thought and suffer serious consequences, maybe even needing to be hospitalized physically for what they're going through. But again, oftentimes they are not suicidal, but the cutting maybe went a little bit more than they had thought, or they cut a tendon or vein or artery, uh, unfortunately causing more damage or harm. So cutting is serious. So when I say it does not mean they're suicidal, it doesn't mean that I'm saying take it lightly. Um, and related to that, if you see that someone you know or love, and especially a child, is cutting, take it seriously. Very often people want to ignore it or deny the situation. Just think, oh, it's just a phase, or uh, she learned it from her friends. She won't do it anymore. And I don't want to talk about it because maybe that'll give it more attention. Maybe she's just doing it for attention. So I'm going to give her no attention about the cutting. But these are, in my opinion, very bad ways of dealing with it. We want to take it very seriously, meaning not that we judge them or attack them or that we instantly hospitalize them or call uh, the police on them or anything of that nature. When I say take it seriously, I mean we talk to them about it. We want to understand, as I was just describing, if your child is cutting, this means they're experiencing intense emotional pain that they are not sure how to deal with. They feel alone and they don't feel they can communicate it with anyone or connect with anyone about it. They have a hard time trusting. And so we should recognize this is a sign of extreme emotional anguish, severe pain. And we want to do something about it and they're going to need help. Now, unfortunately, oftentimes cutters hide their cuts. So they might even strategically choose the places where they cut in places where no one will see, maybe on the thighs or high on the arms, or even if they do it lower on the arms, they might always wear long sleeves to make sure no one can see these scars, to see what they are doing to themselves. And related to that, they might also feel a lot of shame about what they do. Like many addictive type behaviors, there's a good amount of shame involved. Someone is uh, bulimic and they feel a lot of shame about what they're doing. Someone is dealing with a drug problem and they might hide it from people because there's so much shame. And they might say, I don't want to do it again. And then they do it and they feel so bad and they don't want to tell anyone about it. So unfortunately, oftentimes people who cut can try to hide it from other people. So if you do see a sign, take it seriously, um, gently confront them or communicate with them that you saw what you saw and that you're concerned about them and you want them to get help. And getting help um, can take different forms, but a big part of that is going to be therapy and potentially medication. And there might even be other things that they might have to do to help themselves and be ready that if they go into therapy, it can take some time because these individuals have a difficult time with trust. But what's so important is that they need to form a trusting relationship as uh, Dr. Levenkron talks about an attachment dependency trust access. So they have to build trust and then allow themselves to become dependent on someone and then feel an attachment. And oftentimes this 
can be done with the therapist. So you have to be ready that the progress will be slow. Also, as he describes, the progress will be uneven, meaning that you might see they're getting better, but then they might cut again. But don't give up hope. Progress is uneven. It's not linear. It goes up and down, but hopefully towards healing and a, a better outcome. Um, but I wanted to talk about cutting today and read this book and talk about it because it's such an important topic, something that many people are dealing with, but we can't remain quiet or silent about it. And we want to make sure we're not judging one another for things that we're dealing with and struggling with, however bizarre it might seem to us. It's a way that someone has learned to cope with what they're dealing with, just like some things that we do might seem bizarre to someone else. So we want to have that non-judgmental attitude, and that's the best way that we actually can help people or help our loved ones and also recognize that we're hurting them by our judgment. So um, if you have a teenager and if you know someone who is dealing with cutting, I'd recommend this book. But anyway, it's a good book to learn more about this phenomenon that many people might find hard to understand. So that was Cutting by Stephen Levencron. And again, the book for this week is Mindful Tech by David Levy. Again, a big thanks to Pioneer in Seattle for that recommendation. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui, studio number 3104410555. I wanted to talk about a documentary. I didn't actually finish it. I really only saw parts of it, but it was so um, inspiring or it made me just think about so many things I thought it was worth sharing. So it was called The Story of Women and Art, um, and I think it's several parts because it says part one, uh, and it was on the BBC. And it was looking at how... Women throughout history, or if we say it the other way, men have been the majority of artists throughout history. Of course, thankfully, that is changing in present day. But looking throughout history, women were not featured in art. And of course, one way of understanding that would be that, well, women are not very artistic or are not good at art. As you can imagine, I'm not very satisfied with this explanation, but that's what some people would conclude. You don't see many women in art, so they must not be good at it. But when we look at the history, really, we recognize that it's not about skill or ability. Um, it's that they weren't given the opportunity to create art, or if they did, it was very difficult for them to do so. And so this documentary was looking at the role of women in art and how they hadn't really given been given chances looking at the the renaissance and they talk about various artists and i don't remember their exact names um, but seeing how challenging it was for them to become artists or in only very specific circumstances they were able to become artists and sometimes had to be very bold in order to think they could um, be an artist one of them became a sculptor and an incredibly good one but um, unfortunately, even still did not get the prominence of people that were men that also did the same thing. They would think of sculpting as something that required physical strength 
and uh, a certain intellect. And so a woman couldn't do that. But this woman, I think her last name was De Rossi, something like that. Um, she won some competition. But even after she won the competition for the church, they put her work in some back room. Actually, it's almost like it looked like it was by the gift shop now, uh, not really on full display, even though her work was quite incredible. And so we see that how hard it was for these women to contribute artistically, and yet some of them incredibly did. And it was so inspiring, but also sad to see uh, how hard they had to work just to be able to show some level of uh, artistic expression. Another one of them was the, the daughter of an artist. So because of that, she had access to art supplies, but also to training, which was not available to women because her father could teach her. But if she tried to go to some kind of apprenticeship to become an artist, she would not be accepted. Uh, so it was quite interesting to see what these women went through. And as I said, I haven't even finished the documentary, but was watching it today and was so inspired by it that I wanted to talk about it because it reminds me of how much we as, as society, as a global society, the whole world, how much we miss out when we hold any group back, any people back. So throughout history, women have been um, held back in so many ways. And look at how much we've missed in what they could contribute. These few inspiring, incredible artists thankfully did break through and contribute, and yet even their art did not get the attention and still the attention that it deserves, as this documentary was talking about. But think about all the other artists that could have been, but never were given the opportunity to create their art and to share that with the world. How many uh, female Michelangelos there could have been in the Renaissance, but we didn't get to have because they were essentially not allowed or it was very, very difficult for them to produce their art. And of course, it doesn't just end in the artistic sphere. We see this in all areas of life, in science, um, in uh, literature, in whatever field we can think of, women could have contributed much more had we given them the opportunity to do so. And we often think of this as, okay, that's so unfair to the women who did not get to express themselves and share what they wanted to share and to, to be what they wanted to be or maybe get attention and get fame. And that's definitely true. It's very, very unfair to them. But we as a society, it is also unfair to us because we miss out on what they can contribute. If they could have shared this art, it could have been beautiful and we could have enjoyed it and been inspired by it. Or if they're allowed to be more involved in uh, science and other affairs, we'd also get to benefit from that. Of course, Marie Curie was very famous for being a female scientist um, many, many years ago. But how many other scientists could there have been that we didn't allow for them to develop? And then, of course, it doesn't just stop with women. If we look at different groups, we hold them back or have held them back as well. In the United States with the African-American community for so long and still they are held back um, and their contributions have been diminished because of that. Or I should say the other way, we haven't allowed them to um, be what they could have been in many generations because they weren't given the chance. Of course, even after slavery for many years, 
they were not supposed to read, or especially when they were slaves, they were not even supposed to learn how to read. It was considered uh, a crime for them to know how to read. So, of course, how much did we miss from that? And still, we hold uh, people back, and we I won't get into a whole conversation about how things are still, uh, the scales are not really balanced for the African-American community in the United States, meaning that they don't have all the opportunities that everyone else has, and there still is systematic ways that they are oppressed. Uh, but throughout history, we can see there's so much more that they could have contributed, which again is unfair to them to not allow them to express themselves and to be given all the rights and opportunities as everyone else. But we as a society miss out. Um, and the same with people who are impoverished, which of course can overlap with race, unfortunately, in this country because of the systematic oppression that still exists. But how much do we miss from people who can contribute more but never get the education or the opportunity for the education? I, I go to school on wheels on Thursdays and get the opportunity to work with homeless children who are uh, historically disadvantaged when it comes to education in every degree. And that's one of the reasons why this organization exists to try to minimize this education gap that exists for poor children here in the United States. And so again, it's not just them, it's unfair to them, and you feel it when you're there that these kids deserve everything, and they really, really do. Um, but you also see in them so much potential that it would be such a shame if we did not allow for them to get all the education and opportunities they deserve to create what they could to then contribute to everyone, for us to all benefit as well. So I really enjoyed the portion of the documentary I saw, which I will finish, the story of women and art on the BBC. And it's just another reminder of how much, how unfair it is when we hold people back, but also how much we all miss out when we hold people back, whatever uh, group that might be. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. In the first segment, I was talking about the book Cutting by Stephen Levincron and this idea of cutting that people do this behavior that people use in a way as a coping mechanism or behavior to deal with their emotions when they, they really feel they have no other way of doing so. Uh, and I did talk about this idea that we have such a hard time or many people can have a hard time understanding why someone would do this why someone would literally harm themselves physically in a way to try to help themselves or deal with their pain. How can more pain help us deal with pain? It can seem counterintuitive. Um, but as I mentioned, there are reasons why they do this. There is a relief that they can get. Physiologically, the endorphins that are released can actually be calming and give some type of a good feeling. But also, oftentimes, unfortunately, they've associated pain with comfort and security and attachment, or pain with home. It connects them to something. But there's two aspects of this that I, I brought up a bit in the first topic, but I, or first segment, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, one is the issue of denial. I get to work with a lot of families, and 
I really enjoy the process. But one thing that I notice time and time again is the way that denial can impact families in a negative way. And by that, I mean something is clearly not right or we see something is wrong. And very often our reaction to that is to avoid it or to pretend like it's not there, pretend like it's not important or significant or that it's going to go away. And sometimes we rationalize it with this concept that I mentioned before that, well, if we talk about it, then we make it a bigger deal. But let's just not talk about it and hope it disappears. And this doesn't work. One, when there is a problem, when it is untreated or it's not looked at, it's going to get worse. And two, when someone shows you their problem and you ignore it, that gives them the feeling that you don't care, that you don't want to help them, that you don't care to get involved or do anything about it, or that you don't care about them. I showed you I was in pain and you turned your back. How is that going to make them feel? So what we need to do is rather than turning away, we have to turn towards. And yes, it's so painful and uncomfortable and just overall distressing and maybe overwhelming. That's why we do deny. We feel like we can't handle uh, what we might see or feel. It can be very overwhelming to, to see your kids suffering in really any way. But of course, something like cutting or let's say if they talk about suicide or if they might seem anxious or depressed, it could feel overwhelming to deal with that. I can't even imagine dealing with that pain. Uh, and I say that myself, but also that's what the parents might be feeling, that I can't imagine dealing with that, so I'm going to ignore it. But we have to overcome that. Part of that is also a topic I brought up last week of distress tolerance, that we have to understand that we can take on a lot more than we think. And by that I mean we think we can't handle something, but if we're faced with it, we find out that we can. Very often people say, oh, there's no way I could deal with this. If I ever had to deal with going through chemotherapy, if I was diagnosed with cancer, there's no way I could do that. Even for someone like me, that's something I can think of because I hate needles. I don't do well with them. And getting poked and prodded over and over again, it seems like it would be very challenging for me. And in some ways I might think, oh, I don't think I can deal with that. But I hope I never have to. But if I do... I have the hope that I can or the belief that I can. So very often we think we can't handle something, but if we're faced with it, we can. Now, not only is there that aspect that we can, if we really think of what love is, love is a big part of it. Being there for our loved ones, the person that we love, when they are in pain. That's one of the biggest things we give to people that we love. When we're okay, when we're feeling good, it's nice to share those things and those memories and those experiences. Those are very important, but we don't need someone. We're okay without someone. It's when we're in pain where true love and the value of relationships show themselves. And especially when you're a parent, your job is to be there for your kids in their pain. They're supposed to be able to rely on you to take care of them, to help them to be there for them, to be the strong rock that they need when things are not going well or when they're in pain or suffering in some way. So your role must be to turn towards, to 
ask questions, to take things seriously, to not avoid them, face the reality. Um, and when it comes to cutting, actually, to bring it back to that, the way that the author of the book talks about dealing with it, or one of the aspects, is actually being very direct about it. So with his clients, he talks about many different cases. And when they come in, he says, okay, roll up your sleeve and show me the cuts. Let me look at them with you. And this does a few things. One is, of course, it shows that we're going to, I'm going to keep track of this because as much as we want to be loving and kind, he also talks about having this uh, authoritative stance that you have to still have that and they need that to help them get better, to help show them you're going to be in control and to help take care of them and be there and you can take care of them. Um, but he says, let me show, show me what the scars, show me the cuts. So again, one to show that I'm going to be keeping track of this. So it's not something you're going to hide anymore, but also to show them that we're not grossed out by it. So he looks at them with the person very matter of factly. He sometimes might comment on, um, that must've hurt, or you must've been hurting a lot to do that which is how we should try to understand that. If something, someone is doing that behavior, that means they're in a lot of mental uh, or emotional pain, and that's their way of dealing with it. But he's making them show them or showing to them that I'm not afraid or disgusted by this. I'm not going to avoid it. You don't have to do this alone. Cutting can make the person feel very alone in what they're doing, and you're showing them that I'm not going to be disgusted. It's not going to be too much for me. I'm not going to be overwhelmed by this. I can handle this and I'm now with you. You're no longer alone in what you're doing and what you're experiencing. And that can be critical. And that's what people need to feel. And especially as a parent, that's what you want to give to your child. You're not going through this alone. Kids are bullying you at school. We don't want to just say, oh, you know, you'll get over it. You'll find new friends or kids tease people or, oh, when I was young, they teased me a lot. Don't worry about it and just forget about it or just deny it altogether. We want to look at those scars, in this case, emotional scars. Tell me about how you feel. Um, tell me what you went through. That must have been difficult. That must have been hard. And what he talks about throughout this book is that cutting is a behavior that these children and teens have resorted to because they feel like they couldn't verbalize and communicate their emotions. There was no one there. So we want to make sure we are there. We're not going to avoid their pain. We're not going to deny their pain. We're going to be there with them through their pain because pain is inevitable. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be um, difficulties, heartbreaks, negative emotions, rejections, all sorts of things are going to happen in your child's life. We have to accept that as soon as you have your child or as soon as you're even pregnant with the child, that your child is going to go through these things. There's going to be pain, and we have to accept that. Your job isn't to completely eliminate pain. Yes, you want to eliminate all unnecessary pain or avoidable pain. And by avoidable, I don't mean that you uh, avoid anything from ever happening to them, but I mean the things that don't need to hurt them or protect them. Yes, you keep them safe. but you can't create a life without pain. And the good thing is, or the good news is, that your child will be able to withstand it. You don't have to eliminate pain because they can handle it, just like you can handle much more than you think you can. Your children can too. They can be sad sometimes. They can deal with heartache. They can deal with missing someone. They can deal with teasing. 
But your job is not to take away the pain, but to be there with them during their pain, to not avoid or deny the pain, but to actually face it with them. And with that, you also give your child a very big gift, which is that pain hurts, but we're not afraid of it. We're not afraid that it's going to completely knock us down and we're never going to get back up or that it will overwhelm us and make us weak and powerless. We're showing them that pain happens, but we're not afraid to face it because we know that pain goes away, that we can deal with it, make things better and actually feel better. We don't have to be uh, the slaves to our pain or we don't have to suffer continually, we can deal with it and pain like all emotions can and will go away. So facing those things head on gives your kids this reassurance that they too can handle things and slowly they'll start to handle it more and more on their own without your help because they'll learn how to take care of themselves more and more. Now the other aspect is when we ignore these types of behaviors or when we ignore their pain, as I mentioned before, they only get worse. Don't think that things are a phase or they're going to go away. I can't tell you the number of times people in my office have said, you know, my kid's starting doing this and we thought, you know, he's just this age or she's just this age and it's going to stop. Or we saw her doing that and I wasn't sure, but I wouldn't look at it so she wouldn't think I knew, so maybe it would just go away on its own or whatever it might be. But so many instances of the parent, of course, in their wishful thinking, because they don't want it to be true, looking away, turning away, or pretending like they didn't see what they saw because they felt they couldn't handle that. Now, as I mentioned before, I can empathize with how difficult it is to see your child suffering in any way, let alone something that's potentially serious. But think of the feeling you'd have if you didn't intervene and it became much worse. It led to a deterioration of themselves or some behavior, whatever it might be, or in the worst case scenario, even death, because that is possible. Suicide is a real thing, a real phenomenon that does happen. And we can't ignore that. We can't deny that. And you don't want to live with that regret of why didn't I do something when I saw something going on with my child? I felt something was different, but I didn't want it to be so. So I avoided it. That's going to be the biggest regret of your life. But facing it as difficult as it might be, and it might create new challenges. Maybe you'll need help. You might have to go to therapy for your kid, with your kid, on your own, talk to teachers. Yeah, it's tough work, but that means I love you enough to do that work and not to avoid what's going on. So try to be honest to yourself and honest to the reality of the situation when you look at your kids and what they're going through. And I always say, take things seriously. Your kid mentions suicide in any way. You take it seriously. Again, doesn't mean you have to call the authorities and hospitalize your child as soon as you hear that word, but it means you take it seriously, meaning that you're going to have a conversation about it. You're going to talk about it, not in a punishing way, but in a way that you really want to understand what they meant. And that does two things. One, if they really are serious, it could be life-saving, uh, which is good. Um, also related to that, they know that if ever they are feeling that way, they can talk to you because you now showed them you can handle it. But also it shows them that we're not going to joke about that. So you can't use that as a way of trying to get your way. 
Sometimes, yes, I don't want to say suicide threats are a joke or you shouldn't take them seriously, but if push comes to shove, some someone might use that in a way in their advantage. And you want to let them know we're never going to let that go. Every time you say it, it's going to be serious. So you take it seriously every time. You don't take it lightly. You don't assume it's a joke. You don't just say she's going to forget about it or he's going to forget about it. You say, we're going to talk about this. I'm going to face this. We're going to face this together. And we can face it together because I love you. I'm not going to let you suffer on your own. I'm going to take it seriously with you. And that's uh, the power of not denying and facing the reality. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and everyone listening. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.